The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Innovating Innovation with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, I promise you're in absolutely the right place. Today's buzz... Fever, not just any fever, startup fever. Maybe you have it. Maybe somebody you know, a relative, a friend, a colleague. People are thinking about starting up a business all over the world. So let's see what's going on on this landscape. I hear a sound. It's whoosh. That's the legions of startups roaring out of the gate. They have energy and passion and commitment. They're going to conquer the world. They're going to get rich. They're going to make a name for themselves. It's so impressive. Wait a minute. I hear another sound. Thud. I hope I did that right. Thud. That's the sound of, oh, no, more than 90% of startups failing. That's right. They hit the ground running and the running came to a halt very quickly. What's up with these numbers? Doesn't even make sense. Did so many of these well-meaning entrepreneurs misread the market? They just had the wrong product, the wrong approach. Did they run out of cash too soon? Did they have the wrong mentors? Ooh, that could be a problem. Did they choose the wrong core team? They just didn't simply bring the right people to the table or all of the above? Well, before they reboot themselves, for their next venture because we know many of them are not going to give up after one failure. They're going to what we call fail fast and fail often. There's got to be a way to boost the success rate and spread this wealth of entrepreneurial success beyond this first attempt. We want it to go outside of Silicon Valley, India, London, Israel, New York, other startup-friendly environments. How can we boost the success rate? We've got a panel back with me, and I say back because this is part two of a similar topic we did in December 2014. Seems so long ago. I'm delighted to welcome back my first panelist. He is Suraj Suchi, and his last name is spelled S-U-D-J-I. I think I pronounced it right, and he's with SAP Startup Focus. And Suraj sent me the following quote, four very powerful words from Andy Grove. By the way, Andy Grove is the author of Only the Paranoid Survive, How to Exploit the Crisis Points that Challenge Every Company. And the quote is, Only the Paranoid Survive. Suraj, welcome back. How are you today? Very good, Bonnie. Thanks a lot for Thank- inviting me. We're delighted. So talk to me. Interesting quote. Very uh, brief on words, only the paranoid survive. Do you think this is true? And tell us how this relates to our topic, Siraj. Go ahead. Definitely. So this is a very interesting book I read pretty long back ago when I was in college. I think it still holds relevance as it, as it had been when I actually read it the first time. So one thing which uh, I have seen over the span of talking to multiple startups is that uh, the startups who are more likely to succeed are the ones who are essentially prepared. 
essentially have thought through different scenarios of where they can fail and basically have backups or have taken up steps to make sure that they are ready to overcome it. So, for example, uh, for a startup, I think this was best said by, um, I think, Jeff Bezos in one of his speeches that uh, there are so many things which can go wrong for a startup and they essentially don't have the right resources. They're not big enough to survive many of them. So it really makes a lot of sense for, for the founders, for others to be paranoid in terms of what all can go wrong. How can I actually overcome it? And only by having that kind of an attitude, I think, a startup can really succeed going forward. Very interesting. We, we typically think of paranoid as something we want to cure with medication. You know that. People who are <laughs> hearing, hearing the voices, however, it sounds like this is a healthy kind of paranoia. And I'm thinking also, Siraj, perhaps the paranoia extends into the realm of who do I tell and not tell about my great next big thing, NBT idea? Uh, do I have NDAs with everybody? Do I only bring in trusted advisors, trusted core team of startup employees, trusted mentors, because I don't want them to steal my idea? Do you think that's a big thing on the mind of entrepreneurs today is who's going to take their idea before they get to run with it? Actually, I wouldn't say so uh, to, to a large extent, simply for the fact that idea is a dime a dozen. So if you look mm-hmm. out into the market, you would see the same idea being talked by 10 different people. It's a matter of execution and the way in which you do this, this actually defines your success. So just like the way, for example, I'll give an example of Amazon. When Amazon started, there was almost close to a dozen other companies doing exactly what Amazon was doing, mm-hmm. yet only Amazon survived. Right to, to get an example, or similarly, even in, in anything anything like India as well, there are multiple companies which are competing with Uber, and one of them actually is now making a big bucks out here. The, it, it is actually doing very well. So, if you look at it, ideas are diverse. I mean, there are. This is a question which a lot of first-time entrepreneurs specifically ask: Do I need to get an NDA? What if somebody steals my idea? Do I get a trusted advisor? Trust me, I think that is the least of the problems. I think that is the smallest <laughs> of the problems. The fuck. So, very, yeah, so very. That was a yeah. great point, Siraj. A great point. Thank you very much. Ideas are a dime a dozen, and don't worry about how many other people have them. You want to be the one to succeed. I love it. Thank you. Let me bring on your second co-panelist. It's Professor Rajiv Srinivasan. He told me I pronounced it right before the show. He is an adjunct professor at the India Institute of Management in Bangalore. And here are the, this is a direct quote, an original from Rajiv. He says, two issues, the ability to take a new idea to market and the ability to protect your intellectual property seem to be the biggest problem with current startups. Rajiv, welcome back. How are you? Glad to be back on the show. Thank you. Talk to me about now. You're talking about one of the problems is protecting your intellectual property. So you want to disagree with Siraj that ideas are a dime a dozen? Talk to me. Well, it's interesting that uh, Suraj said that, partly because he personally holds six, uh, I think, six patents. So he's a man who's been through the mill in terms of uh, coming up with an idea and then articulating it and protecting it and so forth. My, my thought was that, um, you know, I've been, I've been on uh, a national panel on uh, intellectual property, which is putting together a policy for India. And as a part of my you know, research for that, I talked to a whole lot of startup companies, and I found that almost none of them actually thinks about uh, officially and formally protecting their intellectual property until a time when it perhaps is too late already, uh, mm-hmm. or perhaps when um, 
they need to go in front of some venture capitalist or other investor. And the investor asks, what is your uh, unfair competitive advantage over everybody else who's doing exactly the same thing you're doing? And if he can produce a patent, that almost always impresses the investor. So most companies um, at an early stage, even if they have a good idea, they're far too busy going to market and finding up customers and so forth. And they may not think about uh, the value of IP. And uh, having said that, I do agree with uh, Suraj because um, uh, he uh, pointed out a very, very relevant fact that, uh, uh, you know, it, it seems to be a law of nature that at a given time, at a given place, 15 people will have the same idea as you do. And therefore, you know, the whole business of NDAs and so forth, it doesn't uh, carry a whole lot of weight, especially in the technology industry, because even if you have a great idea, it's almost certain that it will not last for more than, you know, two, three years. The window of opportunity is very, very short. So I want to make a distinction between somebody sort of believing that their idea is going to make them rich and powerful and, and successful and so forth, and uh, the, the, uh, the point that if you have something that is truly patentable or otherwise protectable by intellectual property, because there are other things, you know, you could do copyrights, you could do trade mm-hmm. secrets, you could do, you know, geographic indications, um, trademarks, many things. You find that over time they become extremely powerful because you're able to prevent other people from coming into your market. Or, you know, if you're lucky enough to have your uh, uh, intellectual property become a standard, then you can essentially force everybody else to buy a license from you, which is mm-hmm. the very nice situation. You know, certain companies like Qualcomm or uh, Rambus in the uh, IT industry and uh, semiconductor industry, respectively, have had where the entire world, you know, anybody who wants to build a cell phone pretty much has to go to Qualcomm and pay them some money, right? So that's mm-hmm. a nice position to be in. And uh, also, admittedly, it's very few uh, companies and uh, startups that will have that you know, that, that uh, what might be called a disruptive innovation, something that's truly mm-hmm. outstanding that can lead to a, a defendable patent. But my point was that uh, people don't even seem to try, you know, and it, it's justifiable because it's a big pain going for a patent. <laughs> it takes a lot of time and effort and a lot of money on your part, so they don't tend to think about it. But it may be something that they regret down the road. Uh, interesting. I, I think we're going to title this episode uh, a handbook or a primer or a primer, however ever you want to call it, in uh, what to do and not to do to be a successful startup. These tips are wonderful. So, so far we've heard from Siraj Suti. We've heard from Professor Rajiv Sirnivasan. And now we have to go to the organizer of this party. His name, well, he lets me call him Lucky, and we're lucky to have him. Uh, his formal name is Lakshman Pachanila Seshadri. He's from SAP. And Lucky has sent me a wonderful quote that that I feel strongly rounds out this discussion very nicely. The quote is from Professor Clayton Christensen, and listen up, everyone. The quote is, innovators need a heavy dose of faith. That's right, I said F-A-I-T-H, faith. They need to trust their intuition that they are working on a big idea. That faith need not be blind. Lucky, welcome back. How are you today? Oh, thank you, Bonnie. Thanks for uh, inviting me again into the part two show. Delighted. Now, delightful. Now, I got to tell you, Lucky, you're picking up on this dose of faith and the intuition and the faith. This rounds out what we've heard from Siraj and Rajiv. So why don't you explain how you picked this quote for today? Yes. I think um, um, I'm a believer um, 
in some of the sayings of uh, Clayton Christensen, and um, I think his experiences himself over a period of time, and many of his words uh, rings a bell, not only for me, but many of those people who are into the innovation area. So when you talk innovation and startups, uh, it, it is a synonym for me. So many of the startups that try to uh, do something which is some, which has got to be unique uh, to this market, to whichever market they're looking for. So in that context, uh, they must have some deep faith in what they're doing in their mm -hmm. idea. What happens is uh, after some point of time, um, some of the startups uh, who have these ideas, they start analyzing more and more, and more they analyze, they get more doubts. And what happens is the most of the reports that those come, those things that come out of this analysis, creates more questions. And um, what happens is it again creates more and more doubts to the people. So therefore, uh, the startups or the innovators, they got to have a heavy dose of faith that their ideas would work. They had done some work, and then they believe that, that that will work, and then they should keep going on. So it is it is not the question of getting into analysis and paralysis. And if they do that, mm -hmm. and I think it becomes um, uh, too very challenging. So careful analysis, um, uh, by definition, uh, highlights that uh, there are good reasons not to proceed. So this is one of the stumbling stones that um, the startups mm -hmm. need to avoid. And this also goes in line with what Suraj and um, Rajiv said, that um, although you have uh, um, ideas a diamond dozen, once you are stuck with, uh, or stuck in the sense, once you have believed in your intuition and believed in your, and have the faith that this idea would work, you should start getting, working, start getting um, your thing, your, your, um, your um, operations together and get going. So that's, uh, that's the key uh, aspect of uh, having faith in your ideas. Another, Thank you, Lucky. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Aspect here mm -hmm. is Bonnie. Yes, go ahead. I was going to say, I, I just had a comment there. Faith and intuition. Uh, I'm, I'm missing one word here that I haven't heard anybody say. Ego. Ego. Pride, excitement, yep. the, the idea that yeah, yeah. I have the idea. It's my idea. I'm going to go with it. I have faith in my idea, but I have faith in myself, that, that sense that I, this could be the one and I'm committed. Maybe that's what I was looking for. Any thoughts on ego in addition to faith and intuition, yeah. Lucky? And then please, please continue what you were going to say. Oh, thanks, Bonnie, for highlighting that. I'm coming to that. <laughs> that's one of my okay. Um, <laughs> Great minds. <laughs> <laughs> Great minds think alike. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so what happens is uh, when um, the startup uh, people, the founders, formulate an idea, excitement speaks, and um, and the more you study about the idea, then you realize the challenges that lie in front of you. So mm. therefore, the innovators need a heavy dose of faith. So now coming to um, what you said uh, is uh, the ego side, but I'll try to put it in a different way here instead of ego. What happens is that um, um, once you believe that it will work and therefore come what may, I will make it happen, uh, irrespective of what other people say. Instead, um, uh, instead what you do is you can only find the truth about your idea, whether it really works or not, is only by action, which means 
that you mm-hmm. just get into the field and see whether it works or not before you get your full product itself. So you have an idea, you get it through some kind of a concept, you could try the concept or you could try the prototype and see whether it works or not. And that gives you the feeling whether, uh, no, whether your idea is really good to the market or not. So that's mm-hmm. a good uh, way of, that's a kind of a litmus test uh, for the startup people uh, to validate their own ego here again. So um, the only way is to find the truth through action. So don't sit in the office along with your startup team, but just go out in the field and try out your ideas and get the feedback and throw it out if it is not right and shed your ego there. Otherwise, um, you know, you get into issues. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. The startups may fail uh, if you get into these ego issues. The only way to break up the ego issue is to get out of the office. Thank you. Good. Yep. Wow, what a, what a great set of, of points we've already had. You know what, I'm going to go back to Siraj Suti and ask you, you know, the critical question I ask on all of our SAP radio shows. And by the way, gentlemen, we now have 15 different series and 11 of them are in live production. So talk about innovating. That's what we do here. Um, Siraj, I have a big question for you. Where are you right now? What time of the day is it? And what's in your cup? What are you drinking? Or what are you going to drink after the show, Siraj? Yeah, so I am based in Bangalore, so I'm right now sitting in the SAP office in Bangalore and having this call. Of course, I'm not having something right now, but immediately after this, it would be a nice cup of hot tea. That's what I usually have. And then, yeah, that's that's basically what I would be having soon. <laughs> well, Siraj, you know I'm not just going to sit still and let you say hot tea. I want to know what flavor is it? What kind is it? Is it leaves? Is it something you put in a little metal tea ball? Does it come in a bag? Is the English called dusty tea? What kind of tea will you be drinking and what will you put in it? Talk to oh, me. Yeah, so it's a tea with a lot of spices. We call this here as masala tea. So there's a lot of spices in the tea. It gives you a different set of flavors, hits you with the moment you have it, and it will really feel really good after you have it, especially if you had a long day or if you had a long call. Whatever, it, it really gives a good, nice twist to your day at the end of it. Thank you very much. We did it. Rajiv Srinivasan, what are you drinking or what are you planning to drink after the show? Uh, hi, Bonnie. I'm sitting in a hotel room in Delhi, and I have a bottle of water near me. This is about all I'm going to drink. And I, I'm, a, I'm generally a water drinker. I, I tend not to drink much tea or coffee, which is unlike most people in India. There's plenty of tea and coffee being drunk all the time. And um, I, I, I have a water story that I want to tell you. It's, uh, yes. You know, I was in Europe recently. I went to, I was in France, and it was one of my uh, first encounters with uh, the European um, habit of charging you like five euro or something for a bottle of water along with your meal. I could not believe how much it cost, you know? So that was one. And the other is a few years ago, I went to Rome. And one of the really nice things about it uh, that nobody had ever mentioned to me was that you, know, you have these um, uh, these uh, water uh, taps all over the city, which are carrying very, uh, I mean, they're the, they're the result of ancient Roman waterworks. And the water, it's like streams. You know, they have these streams coming down from the hills and the water is absolutely crystal clear mm-hmm. and so you don't have to pay for it either so you know if you, you see tourists walking around with with a little bottle and they go to some water tap and it's not you know municipal chlorinated water it's roman 
uh, antiquities uh, or an- antique waterworks that that's uh, uh, still running very well, and the water's really sweet and nice. So, yeah, I'm a water guy mostly. I love that. Thank you. We had a guest on the other on a show yesterday who was telling me that he was in New York City and they still have some of the best tasting sweetest water anywhere. I'm on Long Island here, which is just outside of New York City, and I was told by people, "How can you drink that tap water? You have to get a filter system. You can't drink that tap water, Bonnie." And here I'm about three miles from the New York City border. It may very well be the same water feed, and I just like the tap water. But I wish I could get water from the Roman wells. That's Sounds very sexy, actually, Rajiv. Thank you very much. <laughs> Lucky, we sure. have a tea, tea drinker, we have a water drinker, and what are you drinking today? Uh, I'm having masala chas. Um, this is called as um, buttermilk um, or the or the diluted yogurt, I would say, but with some um, spices in it. So masala chas has um, finely cut um, coriander. And um, the fresh, um, uh, nicely cut ginger, and very little bits of um, chilies, green chili. Sometimes you may also add um, some bit of fenugreek also. And um, this is a very interesting and tasty drink, and uh, good for digestion and um, good for uh, good flavor. And <laughs> you like the, the taste of it in your um, taste buds. So normally you take a large uh, glass of um, masala chas, which chas is uh, what I said is a buttermilk. So, and you keep sipping little by little, and you get energized. <laughs> wow! I like this very what? much. Um, <laughs> yeah, you also drink as an appetizer when you go to restaurants. Uh, it's also given as um, yeah before you start your main course. Very interesting. My dad, uh, my my late dad, was a big milk drinker, but he used to love to go into a fancy restaurant. And they'd say uh, he was a doctor. And they'd say, "Doctor, would you like a coffee or cappuccino with dessert?" And he'd say, "No, I'd like a glass of buttermilk." And they would look at him like, "Are you serious?" He said, "I'm having a piece of chocolate cake for dessert. I want buttermilk with it." And they'd say, "Oh my God, what are we going to do for this customer?" But you know, there is a way. I'm sure it's not as wonderful as the marsala chas you're talking about, like. But there is a way in baking recipes to create buttermilk is you take regular milk and then you put a little bit of white vinegar in it and you let it thicken yeah. the milk and it's called clabbering. And so if you're baking and you need a recipe to be very fluffy and the cake crumb to be very fine, you can add this basically created buttermilk to the recipe. You just let it sit in a measuring cup with a little bit of a couple teaspoons of white vinegar and you just let it thicken. And that's how we pretend we have buttermilk. But yours sounds so much better. I like that. By the way, Lucky, where are you calling in from today? Bangalore, home. Bangalore. Okay, I'm putting this in my notes. Thank you very much. Well, we certainly had a good opening segment. We're talking today about innovation evolution. Why do so many startups fail? Part two. I'm delighted to have back our original panelists from part one, Suraj Suti, Professor Rajiv Srinivasan, and Lucky Seshadri. I'm just going to shortcut it there. We've had some great primer, primer, whatever you call it already, advice on what startups need to do to have the opportunity to be successful. We're going to come 
come back after the break with a lot more interesting talking points. And I'm going to kick off the roundtable with Siraj. So Siraj will get ready. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. You're listening to Innovating Innovation with Game Changers Radio, presented by SAP. And by the way, this is Season 2, Episode number 1. We're kicking off a brand new season with a lot more great information and smart panelists. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. We'll be right back. Michael, out. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The pace of innovation is moving faster than ever, and the future of business will be defined by how quickly business leaders adapt to accelerated ongoing change. Factors as diverse as insights from growing volumes of data, the new global pool of talent, resource scarcity, and business networks and supply chains are shaping the definition of future success. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how business leaders can shape the future of change. Innovating Innovation with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Listening to Innovating Innovation with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Innovating Innovation with Game Changers. Welcome back. You're listening to Innovating Innovation with Game Changers. Our topic today is a very special one because it applies to so many millions of people around the world. The innovation evolution. Why, oh why, do so many startups fail? Part two. I'm delighted to have back my original panel. We have Siraj Suti. We have Professor Rajiv Srinivasan and Lakshman Lucky Pachinella Sashadri. It almost just trips off my tongue. I'm so used to saying your names, gentlemen. So we're going to start our roundtable now. We're going to kick it off with... Siraj Suti, who is head of HANA Startups, APJ, and SAP for SAP. And Siraj, I'm looking at your notes from before the show, and I see something very interesting I don't think we've covered yet. You say a lack of focus in a startup, in an entrepreneur, in an innovator, is a recipe for disaster. Startups during the course of their journey see lots of opportunities and they're, they may be tempted to try all of them. As a result, they spread themselves too thin and they're not able to capture the right opportunities successfully. Suraj, why don't you expand this for us, please? Sure. So maybe I would uh, start off with my an example which I faced recently. Um, this mm-hmm. is a startup who came to me for some advice, and uh, during the course of the discussion, obviously, I asked him, "What do you do?" So they were into they were building a product, good. Then, in addition to this, they were doing consulting on the side. On the top of it, they were doing training, and then in addition to all this, they were doing some other activity as well. <clears throat> so the point was, what I found was most 
specifically for this particular startup because of this too many activities they were not able to focus on one specific they're not able to really do well in one particular area and that is typically what i find with many startups especially much more early stage ones where the key problem which they face is that in an attempt to become a success they start attempting so many different experiments so many different things now what happens with that is that at soon sooner or later you start uh, you know uh, spreading yourself too thin and you're not able to really complete or get behind a particular opportunity as it is so this is completely understandable because many times we are worried about you know how do we get do we have enough cash we're not seeing a success here we should try something here or try this partner or try this opportunity or talk to this customer etc 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 but what really finally comes down to is that because of all these activities you really are not seeing or viewing an opportunity properly in order to take it to its logical end and that seems to and something which i have seen in many of the many of the successful startups is that clear focus is very very it's extremely there for most of these startups so the simple question i ask them is what is your short term goal what is your medium term goal and what is your long term goal if they are able to answer that question very clearly it means the focus is extreme or they know exactly what they want whereas if in many of the other ones who are not so successful that focus or that answer itself is not there so that why i said local lack of focus is really a disaster for disaster and it's a common trait across most uh, successful startups that the focus is very clearly on what they're doing why they're doing it and who they are going to do it with Siraj, thank you. This brings to mind to me one of my favorite TV shows here in the U.S., and I'm, I assume that it might be over there in India. It's uh, Shark Tank. And this is something when the entrepreneurs yeah. come and present their ideas, and very often one of the sharks will say, you're all over the map. You're not focused. Yet, there are times when a shark will say, what's your vision for the next development of this product or of this service? What do you see as the, the next stage, the next phase? We want to see what your vision is. So it has to be tempered, it sounds like. You need to focus. But I I love what you said about the short-term, the medium-term, and the long-term focus and goal. That doesn't mean you're unfocused. It means you're thinking ahead in a measured way, in an intelligent way. Would you agree with that, Siraj? Yes, definitely. Okay, good. Rajiv, we want to get you in on this. Rajiv? Yeah, I'm here. Talk to me. What do you think? You agree with the I, focus yeah, aspect? My, my, well, there are two, two aspects to it. One is, um, see, you kind of have to know, and it goes back a little bit to what uh, uh, Lucky was saying earlier about faith. You know, and, and one of the things I, I think about is a connection between faith and uh, evangelism, right, like you have in some of those uh, churches in the U.S., right? You have these pastors standing up there, and they speak very sonorously about uh, the wonders of whatever their uh, uh, their belief is. So you need to have that level of enthusiasm and uh, energy to uh, uh, propagate your, your vision. And unless you know exactly what that vision is, you're not going to be able to sell it to anybody. So I agree that focus is, is important, and, and it sometimes becomes so uh, overwhelming that it becomes monomania. You know, you, you kind of refuse to think about anything else than the thing that you are focused on, you know, that you become sort of a, I mean, definitely a champion and maybe even a fanatic. But uh, that, that focus is, is clearly a very important thing. And uh, uh, the part of the problem is that see, there are so many tempting opportunities that you have today. You got, you know, all these new uh, 
ideas like the Internet of Things and uh, collaborative economy and and so on and so forth. And you know, you you may you may have started off on one path, and then suddenly you may feel tempted. Look, this other thing looks better. The grass is greener on the other side. And what do you do? You know, do you drop your uh, drop your existing idea and sort of pivot or something? So that, I think that's a it's becoming an issue, and sometimes the pivot is the right thing to do. You know, your original idea may not cut it, and that's one mm-hmm. thing I see many entrepreneurs being willing to do now to abandon something that they've done. So it's a question of when do you decide that uh, the thing that you've been focusing on, like a laser beam, for the last whatever one or two years, is not the right thing, and then you move on. But whatever it is, you have to, you know, you really have to believe in it and. Uh, uh, evangelize it as much as uh, possible. Otherwise, you're not going to get any traction in the market. Thank you, Rajiv. That brings to mind a couple of statements. One is the old, uh, they call it an old saw, an old adage is uh, fish or cut bait. Either do it or, or backtrack, stop and go yeah. do something else. And the other one, as I said in the beginning, is fail fast and fail often. So I guess it could be that from what you're right. saying, Rajiv, that, that the failure could be the decision that this is not going to be a success early on in the development cycle, we have to come up with idea number two or next focus on something that's related but we think will be better. Really good points. Thank you. Lucky, join us. Thoughts on what your fellow panelists have shared with us? Um, yes, Bonnie. I, um, I tend to agree with what Suraj and uh, Rajiv said. Um, focus is um, critical. Any innovative startup if it has to be effective, it has to be simple, and it has to be focused. And um, it has to do only one thing, otherwise it confuses um, the market as well as uh, their own team. So if you look at uh, many of the successful startups, they had uh, very simple solutions, and um, <laughs> surprisingly they were really breathtakingly very simple. Uh, right from whether it's Amazon or is it um, Google or um, uh, any such, um, nor, uh, for that matter, uh, Facebook and so on. They started very simply with one single idea, and they made it big. You see? So mm-hmm. they had to do one specific thing, and um, that's what will take them to the leadership level. If you have multiple things on your plate, then uh, you don't know where you want to focus, and therefore you don't know where you want to get the leadership from or where you want to gain the leadership. So in that context, I think... Um, Focus is critical so that your energies, your team, and um, the resources goes in the right direction. And um, therefore, you also become really innovative. Otherwise, it's difficult to establish your leadership. That's my I I was going to ask you about leadership. If, if you bring in some really bright minds of people from, let, let's say, a design thinking approach, people from different disciplines who are bringing, each bringing something unique, their background, their passion, their expertise, their vision to the table, and you open it up to, hey, let's sit and talk about this. This is my idea. I've hired you to be my core team, but what do you all think? How strong does the leader have to be if other people are saying, nah, lucky, that's just not going to do it. The three of us think you should make it purple instead of green. Green will never hit the market at the right time this year. When do you give up that leadership and and seed to the rest of the team? Or when do you say, hey, my idea, my company, my paycheck, listen up, kids. This is the way we're going to go. Any any thoughts on that, Lucky, or anybody else on, on yeah. how strong does the leader have to be? Go ahead, whoever wants to talk. Yeah. Yeah, yes, Bonnie. I think then we don't call it as a leadership because um, the product leadership is determined by the, by the users and the market, not by the startup founder. 
So if he can recognize that, then he knows what it means by leadership. He may be leader of the team, but if he want to do a leadership product uh, and he want to have his product to be the uh, to be the leader in the market, and the market has to say what they're going to consume. So that's what design thinking talks to you and wants you to practice. So if there is a multidisciplinary uh, 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 skills that are there in your team, respect that and then bring in their perspectives and then test it out, out there in the field. And that's how the leadership decision should be taken. That's my take on this. Thank you. Anybody else want to comment yeah, I, on I, the leadership? I, yeah. Yeah, I, I, would, uh, I would agree with... Uh, uh, with uh, with uh, lucky on this, I would also go one step further. That in some sense, you know, the leader has to be thing like uh, I don't I don't know what what to call him. You know, sort of like a sacred idiot. Or I mean, you know, what I'm trying to say is someone who just grabs onto this vision and he's an absolute uh, uh, fanatic about it. And it should not be from the point of view of his own um, engineering, uh, etc. It should be from the point of view of the customer. Uh, you really need to get into the head of the customer and understand mm-hmm. what uh, is going to force them to open their wallet and the uh, market, you know, the, the product, the value that your customer is going to gain from the product. And that, uh, if, a, uh, if the CEO can really articulate the value proposition, then um, he should be able to drive his team as well in the same direction right which is to say look uh, we have to uh, uh, we have to go in this direction and it's not me saying it it's not my uh, intuition necessarily saying it i'm able to prove it to you and there is a, a very interesting book by uh, jim collins who is a well known management consultant and it's i think it's the name of the book is um uh, great by choice and there he has an interesting analogy he says you um, start with a bunch of bullets, right? And you try them out. So he calls it, you know, doing something empirical. You try these different mm-hmm. bullets and um, see how they are received. And once you find a bullet that's really hitting the market and, and hitting the target, then you send a cannonball that way. So he says, you know, intuition is nice, but on the other hand, you really got to get the uh, uh, get the evidence. And so it's it's a somewhat complicated and maybe even, you know, it's a self-contradictory thing that the that this, uh, the leader has to do, which is to get people to believe. But then, mm-hmm. as I think uh, your president said some years ago, trust but verify, right? You believe mm-hmm. in something, that's great, but then you better have some, uh, you know, real evidence on the ground rather so, than some- just trusting your intuition too much. Back up. Thank you for mentioning Jim Collins' book. I looked it up. It's great by choice. Uncertainty, chaos, and luck. Why some thrive despite them all. Jim Collins and uh, Morton Hansen looks like he was the, uh, I don't know, wrote a, a forward or something like cool. that. Thank you very yeah. much. Was that, that Rajiv awesome. talking? Yeah. Was that Rajiv talking there? Yes? Yeah, that was Rajiv. Okay. okay. Siraj, did you have anything you want to say yeah. before I go in a different direction? Go ahead, Siraj. Sure, sure. So, uh, so I definitely agree with what Rajiv and Lucky had to say. However, a little bit of difference in points. I think mm-hmm. it again depends on what kind of ideas are going through. Sometimes, so what I've seen specifically is that in many times, sometimes leaders have 
a different view of the world which others are not able to grasp, especially it comes with organizations as well, wherein that you see a different side, you see a different viewpoint, you see it, you have a different information than what the rest of the team already has. So everybody's focused on certain areas. And sometimes it comes to the point of trust in terms of, us, is this person doing the right job and is the person considering us in order to make sure it's the right decision? So, yes, it's a very delicate balance between both sides. You have to verify it one side, but at the same time, intuition also plays a very big role, especially if you're trying to do a disruption of the existing way in which you do work. So I, I always remember this one specific incident. It was, it was more like hearsay rather than really, um, um, I can't verify it with fact, but I, I used to work at some point of time with Apples, and there was a very interesting incident. Somebody told me that uh, when iPod was... Uh, being made, it was initially made with compatibility only to the Mac and nothing not to the Windows. Mm -hmm. And then yep. somebody asked, how will we even sell this thing if it does not integrate or it does not connect with Windows very well? So at the same time, Steve Jobs mentioned this thing that people would buy a Mac to use the iPad or iPod at that point of time. <laughs> so this was a very, it was it was early, uh, late 1999s, 2000 yes. time frame where Apple was not the big thing, but this was a statement which he made and they proved it in the end of the day. So you never know. So I yep. think that's a very delicate judgment, but you'd have to I mean, work with that. Great point. Thank you for the case study. Very, very interesting. I'm going to move in a slightly different direction here. Rajiv, I'm looking at your notes, and uh, I want to talk, talk about something you brought up the last time you spoke. You were mentioning about Jim Collins's book. Uh, I want to focus on something new here. You say, turning a good idea into something that someone wants to buy is a difficult task. And let me read a little more to explain the point. You say, often customers are not vocal about what they want what they need, what they're willing to pay for. And then you add, if a customer buys a hammer, he's actually looking to buy a hole in the wall where he can hang something. So you say user-centric design is one way creatively under, to creatively understand what the customer wants. Let's go into this a little deeper. Rajiv, could you expand it for me, please? Yeah, um, because... Um you know, many products fail because the engineers or other people who built them think it's great and it may well be great, but they're not able to address a real need. Now, if you're a genius, you know, there are certain geniuses out there like uh, Akio Morita of uh, Sony or uh, Steve Jobs of Apple who were able to, what, what they call, um, be a need seeker, that is to mm -hmm. understand an unspoken, un, uh, un uh, articulated need even before the customer really knows they have that need and then they come out with a product which is absolutely a massive success. So for example, Akio Morita did that with the Walkman, which was some years ago, and nobody had ever thought of having a, a portable radio. And, uh, you know, in fact, his engineers were like uh, totally against the concept. They said, this is not going to sell because you know, who'd want to walk around with a with a you know headset on and stuff like that. But Morita stuck to his guns and, you know, the rest is history. Same thing to some extent with, uh, with Steve Jobs, where he was able to really articulate, uh, you know, not just one, but two or three needs, like uh, how we, did, we didn't know we needed iPhones and, and iPads and so forth until Steve Jobs brought them out. So some people are good at doing that, but that is, those are the immortals, but for the rest of us, you really have to go out there and slog away to understand mm -hmm. what exactly your customer needs. And then this goes back a little bit to what uh, Sudhi mentioned uh, uh, earlier about how, um, I mean, Suraj mentioned earlier about how, you know, you have to focus because um, 
Yeah, I was talking to a, a small company that I advised just the other day, and they are in energy, you know, and, and the, they have a product, and it you know works quite well, etc. But he is having a, a, a tough time deciding on which market to go after. Notice that he's got a product and all that, but he's got a choice between going after um, retail home consumers or after industrial consumers or um, um, commercial consumers, because com- commercial meaning retail, I mean, meaning, um, uh, uh, I mean, shopping centers and so forth, which consume a lot of energy. And he told me he tried to do two two sectors. He tried going after two sectors, and it was impossible because the needs of the two sectors, which was the re- you know, the end user consumer and uh, uh, the commercial customer, were so different that it was impossible for him to uh, manage both of them. So he was asking me, "What should I go after?" And I said, "I I don't know. You know, you got to do a little bit more analysis." But what I'm trying to point out is that, you know, you got to get inside the head of your uh, of your customer, whoever it is, mm-hmm. and really understand that person so thoroughly that uh, you could write a novel about him if you want. And this uh-huh. is part of what uh, you know, Lakshman and I. We we actually teach a course on design thinking, and I, I noticed you mentioned that. And design thinking and user centric design are about really, really building in the consumer or the end customer right from the early stages, and not. Bringing design in as a prettification at the end of the process. You want to start with understand. You know, is it the, is he buying a hole in the wall or is he buying a uh, you know what is he buying? What is what what is the need that you're meeting, and how can that be uh, really met? So, for example, if you're uh, uh, if you're uh, uh, you know we we tried one of the one of the uh, design thinking exercises we did was what are the needs of itinerant uh, construction workers? in Bangalore, of which there are many, because Bangalore's got a lot of construction. And we were quite uh, intrigued to find out that the big big issue was how do we ensure that our children um, uh, are healthy, okay? And that was a, a major, and that was the overriding issue for them. They were not so worried about themselves, but they were worried about the children. So the point is, what is it that your your target customer wants, and you mm-hmm. really really need to uh, delve deep into that if you're going to be a success. Thank you, Rajiv. Good points, all. And uh, we're we're running a little short on time here, so I want to cover some more interesting topics from the notes from my guests. Lucky, I'm looking at your notes here, and there's something I don't think I've heard the three of you talk about yet. I think it's very important. So let's talk about if you cannot scale. Do not start your venture. Lucky, these are very damning words. Uh, is this uh, something they have to write on the side of a wall somewhere and remember every day? What does it mean? <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> um, because um, the, the purpose of any startup is to um, not only to survive, but also to be, become really successful. So when you want to be successful, which means you need to grow in large scale and um, get more and more customers and get more and more value from the market. So therefore, the startups, the founders, uh, the team have to have that in mind, the endpoint in mind, and then try and see how they need to scale up. And I say um, scaling up not by any hook or crook, but then do it in a manner that um, it is acceptable to the market. So which means your product as well as the market must be uh, good enough to consume them. And um, accordingly, you know, you need to scale up really well. 
and uh, most often what happens is that um, people do shortcuts and um, therefore there is a um, uh, there is a difference uh, or there is there are some misgivings in terms of the market product and the market fit and therefore it bombs or sometimes what happens is in order to scale up you don't have the right organization because uh, the, the the team that you have in the beginning and the team that you want to scale up is very very different so when mm-hmm. you're scaling up maybe from a 20 people organization you become a 200 people organization then the organization becomes very different mm-hmm. so therefore the mindset of the entrepreneur of the founders also becomes different from the entrepreneurial personality is one and the executive personality is another one so that has to be distinguished if you if the founders or the startup team founders are not, not able to distinguish this and then not not able to take the right decisions then your scaling up can go for a real toss so these are some of the aspects of um, scaling up if you because we can't do the scaling up there's no question of uh, startups uh, not being uh, existing at all and then added to that is that um, look for the long term demand and instead of focusing on sales and marketing for the current uh, short term needs right and then um, focus focus on your product for or your solution whatever your startup is trying to address to the market and um, price is something that you cannot um, uh, negotiate in the sense that if there are uh, another 10 people competing with you you can't be competing competing in the price because you need to compete on the value finally you know that there is going to be a consolidation happening amongst your people amongst your own players and therefore mm-hmm. the value will only will survive so just because your other competitors are bringing down the price you also bring down the price it may not take you too long and therefore it will also affect your scaling up your operations so therefore if you don't have the scaling up in mind i don't think you could venture at all you must dream big and it has to be disruptive and it has to be and i'm bringing in that volume and that vision has to be there however you may, you may start small now so therefore it doesn't really uh, uh, really help you know if you uh can't scale up there's no, no no point of starting a venture at all that's my thank you yeah. lucky guess what you've taken us right up to the edge of the show we have to move quickly into our predictions round we call it the crystal ball you've all three done it before and i'm going to give you exactly 1 minute to do your predictions wrap up so let's turn back to siraj suti siraj can you see clearly to the year 2020 on what will or will not change in the world of entrepreneurs and innovators and startups or any time in the future why don't you tell me how far ahead you want to predict what's going to change for the startup world One minute Siraj go ahead So I think uh, if I look into 10 years 5 to 10 years in the future I think the one clear thing which I am going to see is more startups succeeding going forward because what as uh, uh, Paulo Coelho talks about in the uh, in his book uh, I forgot the name of it but it says it's if if you are really desiring something the entire universe conspires to make it happen So I think there is a genuine interest in the entire ecosystem to see startups succeed so you see with more VCs more angels more incubators accelerators and others coming around so I definitely see a lot more interesting products and others coming out in the market over a span of the next 5 to 10 years time period and I think we would see more more and more of silicon valleys across the world where great startups are coming out 
That's exciting. I love that prediction. Rajiv, go ahead. One minute. Predictions, go. Okay, Bonnie. I I think uh, the bulk of consumers will soon be in emerging markets. So I'm looking at a just a 10-year window by 2025, and consumers in emerging markets are quite different from those in developed markets for a variety of reasons. And I think things like uh, frugal innovation, and an example is the Tata Nano Car that was made in India. And actually, I'll continue with a couple of other uh, Indian examples. Uh, process innovation, radical process innovation, Aravind Eye Care, is an eye hospital that does something just dramatic. You know, they call it McDonaldization in a very positive way of uh, eye surgery. Um, there is another instance here, Narayana Hudayalaya, which is a heart hospital. And they've come up with a mechanism whereby um, they are able to insure an entire village, right? Everybody in the village pays a small amount of money, like 10 rupees, which is mm-hmm. quite a small amount, even for people who are not very well off, every month. And then that enables them to insure the entire village. So anybody in the village who has a heart problem gets uh, to go to Narayana Hizalaya and get heart surgery. Or um, uh, another interesting thing that Airtel, a telecom company in India, did is they just restructured the business so that it's completely disintegrated. You know, they don't, they, they've given up pieces of the business, which paradoxically has done very well for them. So I think some of these things, or all of them, will change the rules of the game, and you find, uh, you'll start finding new companies, especially in uh, developing countries that are succeeding because of these disruptive ideas. Thank you, Rajiv. And I saved 30 seconds for Lucky. I'm sorry, dear. That's all we have left. Give me your predictions fast. <laughs> Go ahead, Lucky. No, no, no problem. No problem, Bonnie. I, I think about one particular um, uh, statement made in one of the studies recently. It says that um, in 10 years, the working population, 80% of the working population will be from the small companies like startups, and only the 20% of the remaining working population will be in the large corporates. I guess this is going to be true, and I am believing it. So, as of all the startups, we see more of innovations and uh, good lifestyle for all the all the newcomers into the working area as well as for the rest of the world. Thanks, thank Bonnie. you, Lucky. Thank you. Beautifully done. I want to thank my three extraordinary panelists. You're so smart and giving, the three of you. You shared so many great ideas. Siraj Suti at SAP Startups, Professor Rajiv Srinivasan, and Lakshman Lucky Sashadri. I hope I got it all right. We have to do a shout-out to Michelle Sirier, the brave soul who sponsors this Innovating Innovation with Game Changer series. We are launching, as I said today, this is the start of Season 2, and I'm delighted to have my three panelists back. Shout-out to Michael our engineer here, pre-recorded Voice America World Talk Radio and the Business Channel team. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, and here's my call to action. You know what I'm going to say. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. See you soon on another episode of Game Changers Radio. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Innovating Innovation with Game Changers, presented by SAP, the best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join your host, Bonnie D. Graham, on Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 